So perhaps I could invite you to open your Bible, if you have it with you, and to do so in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And we're going to read part of this uh, wonderful chapter. And you may recall that on this particular day, the day of Pentecost, Peter had preached this wonderful sermon and uh, began to gather the church. And as he preaches, people respond. And it says in verse 37, when the people heard this, that is Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love those last words. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I like the word daily, that uh, this was happening every day. And I like the fact that it was the Lord who added to their number, because that makes it sound effortless. And that's the kind of evangelism I prefer, personally. The bit that God does, and God adds to the community of his people. So this uh, passage we're going to keep in our minds, but I'm actually not going to preach on this passage as such. Uh, often I preach and I have a text because um, that's uh, something that is intrinsic to the nature of preaching. Uh, it's rather disturbing that I, I go around these days and um, preach from a text, and I find that sometimes... Some older person in the congregation will come to me and say, oh, that's the way it used to be. And uh, I've never quite sort of seen myself in that light before, but clearly I'm uh, touching a chord with somebody. Uh, actually, I want to quote somebody else tonight to preach on a quotation from a man called Canon Peter Green. Now, when I retired five years ago and returned to paradise on earth, namely the northwest of England, having been sojourning in London for 13 years, and came back here to the uh, 
well, the area of my birth, being a, a long sight lad, I came across the name of um, a former vicar of Salford, whose name was Peter Green. I'd be surprised if anybody's heard of Peter Green, but once upon a time he was pretty well known, uh, not just around here, but in the country at large. He was the vicar of Sacred Trinity Church, first of all, in Salford. And if you know your Manchester Salford, the Twin Cities, and you know when you travel, as it were, past um, the cathedral and you go into Salford, there's a, there's a church there, Sacred Trinity. I don't think it's used as a church anymore. I think it's a center for religious education or something. And he was, first of all, vicar of that church. And then uh, he went down the road to St. Philip's, which is the, the big, impressive building, which is there in the center of, of uh, Salford. You've heard of Salford, haven't you? You know, you know, <laughs> you know there's a place called Salford. And he, he, between these two ministries, they lasted 40 years. And they straddled the First World War and the Second World War. And remember that in the Second World War, there was quite a bit of bombing in Manchester. And in the First World War, lots of Salford men, as elsewhere, went off to war and never came back. And so there was a huge amount of pastoral work of all kinds. And he devoted himself to this work with um, great devotion. He was unmarried, so he was able to spend all his time about the work of ministry. And he wrote a number of books. He later became, by the way, a, a canon of Manchester Cathedral, as well as all these other things. And if you go today, as I encourage you to do, into Manchester, you have a day out. And you go past the Wellington Inn, the oldest building in Manchester, a pub, and you pass by the cathedral as if you were going to the football museum. You know where I mean? You would see various blue plaques on the left-hand side on a wall surrounding the cathedral. Uh, one of them is to William Temple, a former bishop of Manchester and later archbishop of Canterbury. Um, another is to a couple of martyrs, people who were martyred for their faith in Manchester. And another one is to Canon Peter Green, because he made such an impact. He, he was an interesting man. He, his father was a strong evangelical Christian. And his mother was a strong Anglo-Catholic Christian. And both of those emphases seem to have fed into his life and into his ministry. So that he had a burning passion to reach people with the gospel. And yet he had a great love for the church, for the body of Christ, for its dignity, for the fact that it is loved of God. And these two things came together in a totally wholesome way in his ministry uh, in Salford over such a long period of time. And he wrote many books. He wrote something like 50 books. I mean, where he found the time to do it, I don't know. But he was a very scholarly man. Later on, he was given a, an honorary doctorate of divinity by Manchester University. And they've not given me one of those yet. <laughs> not that I'm bitter. <laughs> and one of the books was called the town parson. I don't like the word parson, but there we are. The town parson. Now, those of you who are particularly knowledgeable might remember that George Herbert, the Anglican clergyman and poet of the early 17th century, he wrote a book called The Country Parson. And this book, The Town Parson, was Peter Green's 
equivalent version for those who are called not to rural ministry, but to urban ministry, very urban ministry, if you can imagine what Salford was like in the first half of the 20th century. And as I was reading the story of his life, I came across a quotation from him, and that's what I want to speak about tonight. This is Peter Green. He says, The work of a parish priest is to gather a congregation, large, converted, instructed, missionary-hearted, and to set it to work. Now, you can already begin to see that there's a four-point sermon developing here, can't you? Large, converted, instructed, missionary-hearted. That was his vision of the role of a parish priest. Now, let's be a little bit cautious about that phrase because we don't call ministers priests in our particular tradition and for good reasons. Um, The main reason being that we were all priests. We're all part of the priesthood, the royal priesthood, the holy nation. And therefore, we hesitate to give any particular person the title of priest. But we can lay that on one side without too much resentment and say, really, the work of a Christian minister, or even better, the work of a Christian church, is to gather a congregation, large, converted, instructed, missionary-hearted, and to set it to work. So let's look at these words. Large. Actually, the church that Peter Green pastored had uh, at least a thousand people every weekend. And so he knew that of which he spoke when he talked about gathering a large congregation. And in British terms, of course, a thousand people is an awfully large church. Most of our churches are quite a bit smaller than that. Actually, our churches come in all kinds of sizes, don't they? Some of them are large, some of them are very large, some of them, most of them are medium-sized, some of them are small And there is a debate amongst uh, the people who like to debate this kind of thing uh, as to what is the optimum size for a church? What would be the best size for a church to be? And some people, and I'm inclined to agree with them, they argue that the optimum size for a church congregation is about 150 people. And the reason why they argue that is because it's generally thought amongst anthropologists that the size of a human clan is about 150 people. That's large enough to gather food, to hunt, to sustain the clan, and to still look after older members who can no longer look after themselves, and to nurture the children. Uh, With that size of people, you've got sufficient resources in order to achieve what it needs, what needs to be achieved. But at the same time, it's small enough for everybody to know everybody. You can have primary relationships. Everybody would know the name of everybody else within the clan. If you get beyond that, as some of you might know from your experience of church life, it becomes difficult to remember everybody's name. And things get a little bit more impersonal, and structures get a little bit more impersonal. So it's thought that 150 people uh, is a good size for a church to be. Although here on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, you see I'm not preaching from a text, but everything I say tonight is thoroughly biblical. Uh, 
they had up to 3,000 people on the first day and counting. So clearly, larger churches are also there within the spectrum of Christian churches. But um, the point is that uh, Peter Green believed in church growth. And I agree with him, which is why I'm preaching from what he said. I believe, I have always believed, that the role of the church is to gather a congregation, to worship God and to draw people into that worshiping community so that it grows and God is glorified in the lives of more and more people. And that's why I like this phrase, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a great picture that would be. What a great church life that would be if week by week we saw people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and becoming part of the movement of which uh, we are a part. And uh, churches have to be gathered. They have to be gathered. You know, in the 1970s, when I began my life as a minister, there was an awful lot of emphasis upon church growth. And I learned a lot from church growth. And, uh, and yet some people were quite suspicious of church growth because they, it felt to them as if it was the importation into British church life of American methods of management and organization. And to them it felt a little bit impersonal. And so the, the message began to change. The important thing was not so much church growth as church health. With the assumption, a warranted assumption, that if a church is healthy, it will grow. That healthy churches tend to grow. They tend to attract people. They tend to impact people. And whether or not our church, Stockton Heath, Partington, Lynn, whether or not we count it a medium-sized or a large church, then the thing is we want each church to be larger than it currently is. Is that right? That's my heart. That's always been my heart. Whatever church I happen to have belonged to, to see that it grew larger, that it added to its number, by God's grace, those who were being saved. And as there are quite a few declining churches today, you may have noticed, this is a challenge for us. Thank God there are many churches which are growing, despite an inhospitable climate within which we live now. And I uh, cherish the conviction, I used to communicate this to students in no uncertain terms, that church growth is not rocket science. Actually, rocket science isn't rocket science anymore, apparently. Church growth is not rocket science. I'm absolutely persuaded that if you do certain things and you do them in the power of the Holy Spirit, then there will be productive consequences. And the kind of thing which is at the heart, always at the heart, of church growth is what we find here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And when these elements are brought together and engaged in, in the power of the Holy Spirit, they have a remarkable ability to stimulate the growth of the church. Without these ingredients, the church will not grow. Or if it does grow, 
it won't be the right kind of growth. But these fundamental elements are what you might call the basic coordinates of church life. If we're not doing these things, if we're neglecting them, then it is unlikely that we will fulfill this vision of growing larger. Now, the church that Judy and I, this is Judy, my wife, by the way, uh, here, we've been married for, how long have we been married? 48 years. Uh, I remember it well. I mean, <laughs> we, we were only two when we got married, you understand, you know. Uh, we belong to a, a church in Tarpoli. You've heard of Tarpoli as well, haven't you? Uh, and we belong to the chapel in Tarpoli, a village church, very good church. Uh, and it's a Baptist Methodist church, although it's mainly, to be truthful, it's mainly a Baptist church with a, a Methodist uh, component. But the Methodists have got some good things going for them. And I'd um, recommend the, to you something that, uh, that they're working with at the moment, and they call it Ten Holy Habits. Ten Holy Habits. Anybody heard of this? Ten Holy Habits. And from this very chapter, from these very verses that we've read today, they derive ten habits, ten things to do regularly and continually, including listening to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, prayer, but other things like gathering together for meals and so on and so forth, sharing fellowship with one another. And they enumerate these ten habits in the belief that those habits will contributes to making a church a healthy church. And I think it's worth probably preaching upon those ten holy habits, as I intend to do. You see, I did a ten-point sermon yesterday, didn't I, with the leadership team? I've got another ten-point sermon. I feel it coming on, uh, <laughs> even, even as we speak. Now, let me tell you about a cafe I know. Um, for the last X years of my working life, um, we, uh, we lived in London, and uh, I had fairly regularly to go to Birmingham, from London to Birmingham. So a couple of times a year, I had to go and attend a particular meeting in Birmingham. And, uh, and if, you don't get out, if you don't get out of London early, you tend not to get out of London. So I used to get up very early in the morning, and I used to uh, drive up through London and then uh, along the M40 and onto the M42, is it? And then uh, come off at Junction 2 and drive up from the south through Birmingham. Right, excuse me. Through a place called Erdington. And I discovered this particular thing that in Erdington there is a cafe, and it's called the Clock Cafe. And because I'd got up very early, uh, and because I was nowhere within touching distance of Judy, I, I used to say to myself, I can justify a full English breakfast. <laughs> and I used to go to the clock cafe, and I'd park in Weatherspoons on the other side of the road, possibly illegally, and I'd walk across the road, very busy road, and there was this clock cafe, and it was called the clock cafe because there was a dirty great clock outside. And I'd go in, and uh, it was always a, a delightful experience. Um, because um, it was run by um, a, a guy, I think he was probably from uh, the Mediterranean somewhere, but he'd be there with his white coat and his white little trilby on, and as soon as you came in the door, he'd notice you, and it, it led on to you. And he was behind the counter, and he had his acolytes, you know, his fellow workers, all in their white coats. 
and you'd order breakfast and it was excellent food and you'd go and sit down and eat in a beautifully clean cafe and uh, it was always packed with different people and when you'd finished your meal the boss would come around and he'd talk to you and say is there anything else we can do for you and it was a, a very good experience and um, they had a plaque on the wall uh, and it said there are no strangers here but only friends we haven't met yet <laughs> it was spelled all wrong I have to say but uh, it was the right sentiment and that became to me a sort of a picture of, of what churches ought to be like they ought to be welcoming they ought to be places where people come in and they're immediately noticed and they're welcomed in and they're given something good that they can consume, namely preaching and worship and so on. Uh, and they're treated in a respectful and friendly way. And uh, there's personal contact. And they are treated not as strangers, but as friends we haven't met yet. I think this is probably one of the most fruitful areas for church growth that any of our churches has. And we're not always good at welcoming people in, noticing them, and giving them the kind of loving attention that would make them say, I'd like to come here again. You know, I've talked about this clock cafe up and down the country because it's a kind of stock illustration I use of what churches can be like. I should be, I should be claiming from them, you know. I should be getting royalties or something, all the people I've sent. Actually, the last time I drove up there, the cafe had disappeared. Not because it wasn't a good cafe, but because they, they put a dirty great road right through <laughs> where it used to be. But that's my vision of what churches can be like. And I can almost guarantee that insofar as we are like that, we will grow larger and we'll add people to our community. And we need the faith to grow, the faith to believe that this can happen and does happen and will happen in the congregation of which we are a part. Second word, converted. Large, converted. A congregation which is converted. One of my favorite words is the word converted. And it's a word, in my view, we don't use often enough or we don't think about often enough. You see, we might gather a crowd, but what's the point of having a crowd? All sorts of agencies can gather a crowd. We're not just bothered about gathering the crowd. What we want is to see people turning their lives to God so that they embrace the knowledge of God for themselves. And as they come amongst us, they become a living part of the body of Christ, truly joined heart and soul to God and to God's people. And this is what we call conversion. And I suppose I like the word so much because whereas every Christian in my view needs to be converted, uh, in my case I was converted not from, uh, not within a Christian church, but from the outside. And although it wasn't dramatic by any means, and although I wasn't a terribly wicked long sight lad, uh, it was still a very definite experience for me of coming out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. 
That's what we are looking for. To see people turning to Christ. And by the way, um, this I'm standing on the baptistry now. Thankfully, there is a protective covering. But you know what happens here, don't you? You've seen it happen then. And it's a, it's a wonderful picture. Um, people are immersed in water on confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And every time we baptize somebody like that in a church like this, we are reminding ourselves that you do not become a Christian by being born, but by being reborn. That nobody is born a Christian. Not even those who are born into Christian families or born into Christian churches are therefore uh, fully converted members of the body of Christ. Each person needs to come to their own moment, their own time, their own decision, whereby they say, I do not want to live for myself, but I want to live for the living God, and I want to spend my life in the service of God. So this is why baptism, the way we do it, is not imposed upon anybody. We don't baptize babies because... Um, well, that's imposing something on a baby that the baby has not chosen. We believe that people need to make their own choice. And only then, when they've felt in their own hearts the stirring of the Spirit of God and become aware of their own need of God and their own sinfulness, are they really able to place their faith in Jesus and follow him for the rest of their life. That's what baptism speaks of. I used to enjoy preparing people for baptism. I used to enjoy doing baptisms. Still do them occasionally, very occasionally. But I used to say to them when I was preparing them for baptism, the more sinful you've been, the longer you stay under the water. <laughs> and that's what it says here, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Repent, be baptized. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the press. This is a full-orbed conversion experience. And some of the time, we are selling people short when we introduce them to the Christian faith. Because we don't always make them, help them make that full journey from outside to inside from lost to found, from straying to converted. That's what it means to be a Christian, and in a, a land where it's less and less fashionable to be a Christian. Have you noticed that? Less and less fashionable. People are more likely to say these days, I used to be a Catholic, I used to believe in God, but I don't anymore. They're more likely to say that. You're more likely to hear it on the media than for people to say, I have embraced Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. In a, a world where fewer and fewer seem to be willing to confess themselves as Christians, those of us who do need to be clear about our commitment and about our determination to follow him. As for me and my household, we will follow the Lord. So, um, here's a third word, instructed. I think Peter Green is working well for us. Large, converted, instructed. Converted people who know what they believe 
and why they believe it. Because they have been instructed in the faith. They have been taught not just its basic elements, but something of the height and the depth and the length of Christian truth. A task, by the way, which will keep us all working hard for the rest of eternity. You see, this preaching, I'm preaching now, and I've spent, um, I don't know how many years, more than 50 years as a preacher. And um, I think preaching can be very effective. I think preaching can reach people's hearts. I think it can motivate people to love and serve the Lord. But after X number of years of being a preacher, I am also persuaded that preaching has its limitations. It can't achieve everything. It can achieve so much. But there's other stuff that's needed alongside preaching. And when we read the New Testament, uh, we discover not only that people like Peter stood up and preached and got a response, but um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was a process of systematic devotion to what the apostles had to say concerning the Lord whom they had known and loved and whose resurrection they had witnessed and whose truth they were beginning more fully to grasp. So as well as uh, preaching, there should be teaching. And uh, preaching on its own is not enough. You know, I've known a few churches which have had the best preachers. And um, you talk to the members of the congregation who have been coming along for years listening to this preaching, and they love the preaching. But actually, if you probe them, their understanding remains relatively limited because they've contented themselves with being a connoisseur of preaching as to how good that was and how much I enjoyed it. And that's not quite the same as the determination to apply myself to learning. You see, the problem is that learning isn't easy. Learning anything is hard work. And the reason why it's hard work, I don't know if you know this, but it's when you learn things, it actually does things to your brain. Your brain kind of has to shift. And that can for most of have you ever tried learning a language? And you, you're working hard at this, and it gets painful. It gets to the point where it, it really is taking its toll because your brain is shifting. It's being reshaped. It's the renewal of the mind. And uh, this is what teaching does for us. And yet it's not easy. It's demanding, and therefore there are those who would gloss over it. I have a friend who says this. He, he says that most of us are converted on a scrap of truth. And what he means by that, I wondered what he meant the first time I heard him say it. But what he means is this, that when we first come to believe, there is something in the gospel that attracts us and draws us and becomes, as it were, the, uh, the, the, uh, the stimulus for our coming to faith and our believing. But that's only a scrap of truth, and it's only a small part of the whole counsel of God. And the whole counsel of God is something to which we need to apply ourselves so that we become instructed, knowledgeable, wise Christians, people who know their Bibles and who know how to interpret their Bibles and who know what the implications of believing in the biblical witness 
is or are. And not only is there a difference between preaching and teaching, I think there's also another difference. A difference between teaching and learning. There are people who can sit in a, a university classroom or a school classroom and they can be taught and yet not that they're not making the effort to learn. And uh, there's another saying I rather like and there's a, a teacher I've tried to live according to it. Until somebody has learned something, nobody has taught anything. It's learning. And that means taking personal responsibility. It means, for instance, reading our Bibles, not just reading it in a devotional way, but trying to get to the root and the marrow of what is here, to understand the history of God's dealings with God's people. It means reflecting upon Christian theology and teaching. Um, again, one of the things I find is that lots of people who call themselves Baptist or attend the Baptist church have really no idea about what it means to be a Baptist church and um, have not begun to understand what the distinctives are of a congregation like the ones represented here. So instructed and missionary-hearted. Now, Canon Philip Green, the man with an Anglo-Catholic mother and an evangelical father, lived according to what he had learned. These two words really sum up his character. He had a great desire to reach people, to reach in particular the peach people of Salford. He himself was not a northerner. He was, uh, he was an educated man, and yet he was able to relate very happily and with great respect to the ordinary people of Salford. And in order to live out his commission, uh, he, he had certain pastoral and evangelistic practices. One is that he would walk the streets of Salford and pray for the houses that he passed. Now, today we would call that prayer walking, but he was there before we were. He knew the streets of Salford. He knew the people who lived in those streets, and he prayed for them as he walked past them. He always insisted on traveling by public transport. He didn't have a car because he believed that a car would isolate him from the people around him. And so he always traveled by public transport and he became very well known by people who worked in transport industries, people who worked in the trams and the buses and the railways because uh, he was physically available to them. He built a church that was active amongst the young, which worked amongst working people and the poor. He uh, led a church where the members were mobilized to work within the community in all kinds of social groups, reaching out to people. And he lived out his creed of being missionary-hearted. So you see what he meant when he said the work of a parish priest is to gather a congregation, large, converted, instructed, missionary-hearted, and to set it to work. Now we live in an age when, sadly, churches are not always held in honor. On this very day in Rome, a four-day conference of Catholic bishops has come to an end in which they have considered the issues of 
child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. It's a tragic thing to even have to mention this or to think about it. And sadly, uh, that has robbed the Roman Catholic Church of much of its moral authority. But let's not imagine that we are not also smeared by this kind of scandal, that people find it increasingly easy to dismiss church, not as a safe place, not as a community with moral authority, but as something of which to be suspicious and doubtful and to distance oneself. Even sadder than that is the fact that I find that many Christians have a diminished respect for the church. I even hear people who should know better almost dismissing the church and saying it's all about mission, it's all about what we do out there. And the church is a hindrance and it gets in the way, it's an obstacle to the real thing. And the real thing is to be out there doing things in the world. I couldn't disagree more than with that kind of attitude. If there is no church, if there is no vibrant, healthy, living church, sisters and brothers, there is no real mission. The, uh, the need for a, a, a proper mission is dependent upon the need for living congregations who can incarnate the presence of Jesus Christ and who can stimulate that mission in all the communities that we come from. Yes, I believe in missionary congregations, as they're called, very strongly. But I also believe in a congregational mission, that it is through communities like the ones we represent that God can draw near to people and also communities like these are ones in which God can draw people. The Lord added to their number day by day. It's important to God that people be in the church. And it's important to the church that it knows what it is to gather people, to instruct them, and to turn them into the kind of people who can serve the mission of God in our world today. Last word. Every Christian needs at least three conversions. The first conversion is a conversion to Christ whereby we come to believe in him as the way, the truth, and the life, and to embrace the salvation that he brings. But the second conversion is a conversion to the church, to understand that the church is the body of Christ. It is the way in which Christ still takes physical form today amongst the midst of other communities. And when we've undergone that conversion, there's the third conversion. It's the conversion to the world that which points us outwards towards a world that needs to be served and a world that needs to be saved. This is the challenge. And by God's grace, we will take it up. And like Philip Green, we will do all that we possibly can to glorify our God and Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we come to thank you that we have this wonderful privilege of being part of the Church of Jesus Christ. 
We come to thank you that by your spirit you have moved in our hearts and you have drawn us, often drawn us against our own will, into the life of faith and the life of obedience. We thank you for all the riches that we enjoy in the church which is your treasured possession. We thank you for each other and the fact that we share a journey and we share a hope and we share a faith. We want to pray for the three congregations of which we are a part and to ask that by your good grace you would so work amongst us that we might be lights that shine that we might reflect the light which is in Christ and that we might bring that light into places where there is darkness. Let this be so, O Lord, we pray, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.